90.3 RLC WVPH FM Piscataway. It's the core news for the week of Monday, February 28th. Yep, it's the end of February, and it looks like the old saying is true. March is coming in like a lion. At least if today's damp and windy weather is any indication. But don't worry, because the core news is here to pull you out of your late winter blues. This week, been wondering what's been going on with all that WikiLeaks business? Well, we've got the WikiLeak of the week. Find out what's been going on in central New Jersey, in the local news. Our environmental reporter, Nana, heads off to a hearing on hydraulic fracking in the Delaware River Basin. You'll hear about what's been going on around Rutgers this week from Neil Kuypers of the Daily Targum, Rutgers University's own paper. Perth Amboy's fire chief will tell you about an unusual creature that washed up in Sadowski Park this week. Local high school students attend an Upward Bound event, learning how to handle bullying right here in Livingston Student Center. You'll get some news on comics and gaming, and of course, find out what's happening in music this week. But first, here's Amy Bronstein with the war update on Iraq and Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, on Monday, February 21st, a Taliban suicide bomber struck Imam Saib in Kunduz province. The bombing killed 31 civilians, mostly residents, waiting outside a census office for identification cards. Authorities believe the intended target was the governor of Kunduz, whose office was next to the census office. Also on Monday, February 21st, according to Afghan officials Syed Musa, who faced the death penalty for apostasy, which is converting from Islam to Christianity, was released. However, his whereabouts are still unknown, and family members, including his wife, have said they have not yet heard from him. On Thursday, February 24th, the Rolling Stone reported that General Caldwell, or a high-ranking member of his staff, issued orders to military specialists to use psychological operations on a group of visiting lawmakers to secure more funding for training operations. While General Caldwell has denied improper use of intelligence cells, the source for Rolling Stone, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Holmes, said that the intelligence officers were ordered to use information operations in order to change the policy views of visiting U.S. congressmen. An investigation is currently being carried out. On Sunday, February 27th, one of the investigations into 65 alleged civilian deaths from NATO airstrikes in early February has concluded that the deaths were civilian and caused by NATO bombs. NATO, the Afghan Commission on Human Rights, and the UN are all carrying out separate investigations of the incident. NATO has said they believe only insurgents were killed, while other agencies have withheld comment until conclusion of their investigations. The U.S. has been facing increased calls to protect civilians and prevent the loss of innocent life while at the same time there is the need to protect U.S. service personnel. Drones and airstrikes are good for keeping U.S. casualties down, however, inaccuracies often result in civilian deaths, which makes winning the war for hearts and minds that much more difficult. In Iraq, on Friday, February 25th, nationwide protests following Friday prayers ended with 20 demonstrators dead and several government offices set alight and looted. Protesters demanded accountable government as well as jobs, running water, and electricity all of which have been in short supply in Iraq's fledgling democracy. Protest unity was dealt a blow when prominent leaders Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani and Muqtada al-Sadir asked protesters to wait six months so that the newly formed government could have a chance to improve conditions. 
Although the ruling government was only just formed recently, officials were elected in the spring of 2010 and spent over a year in a stalemate for parliamentary control. On Saturday, February 26th, gunmen knocked Iraq's largest oil refinery offline in a pre-dawn raid. Production of the 150,000 barrels per day was stopped, and officials worry it could lead to deficiencies in the Iraqi market. I'm Amy Bronstein with a Core News War Update. It was never that big a deal. It's a great name. It'll it's do, a great you know, idea. We, we, uh, we could have sat down and thought of some other band names, but it's like... The Core News. Oh, okay, that'll do. And now for the WikiLeak of the week. German newspaper Der Spiegel reported that leaked embassy cables show U.S. diplomats and Secretary of State Bob Gates put pressure on the Italian justice system and Italian Prime Minister Berlusconi to drop kidnapping charges being pursued against several CIA agents in their role for the rendition of Egyptian cleric Abu Omar. U.S. officials circumvented normal legal channels in order to prevent the issuing of international arrest warrants for the CIA officers. There have been similar cases in Spain and Germany where European citizens with Arab ancestry have been kidnapped or detained without charges or conviction in international terror cases. And that was Amy Bronstein with the WikiLeak of the Week. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. And now, here's Sarah Morrison with your very own Central New Jersey local news. Two Rutgers students are now in custody after a drug bust in their dorm room. University police arrested the two students after raiding their rooms on the College Avenue campus of the university. They found a large stash of cocaine and marijuana. 19-year-old Keith Carroll will be charged with possession of marijuana and cocaine and on another count of the intent to distribute. His roommate, 19-year-old William McCall, will be charged with possession of marijuana with intent to distribute. Carroll was released on $50,000 bail and McCall is released pending a court hearing. In more Rutgers news, university officials are considering hiring an outside group to manage its football ticket sales. Past efforts to sell tickets have not been successful, according to the university, and officials who deal with dragging sports teams out of the red are in talks with the Aspire Group, a firm with an aggressive ticket-selling tactic. The system, which is in place at Georgia Tech and other universities across the country, has been successful in other places, but the idea remains experimental. The city of New Brunswick announces that construction on George Street in the city is scheduled to be completed this spring. The George Street Beautification Project, which shut down last fall in order to decrease disturbances on the major New Brunswick hub, will start up again on its final stages around the same time that Rutgers University spring semester classes end in May. Once the deadline hits, the project is expected to take six to eight weeks to complete. Middlesex County officials announced over the weekend that its government will undergo a downsizing. They will reduce their headcount from 30 division heads to only five under a plan to create a central but powerful county executive. The plan is being questioned by county freeholders who are concerned that it will give the county executive too much power over different county departments. This consolidation will lead to around 50 layoffs. Meanwhile, in nearby Perth Amboy, a new campaign is underway to deter underage drinkers from getting their hands on alcohol. Mariana Correra of the Perth Amboy Youth Alliance puts bright green stickers on cases of wine coolers and beer, discouraging those who are of age from buying for underage teens. This sticker shock campaign is being supported by local liquor stores and by the county as well. The liquor stores let Correra place these stickers on their products. The campaign will continue through Alcohol Awareness Month in April. Tune in every Monday with me, Sarah Morrison, for the latest in local news only here on 90.3 The Core. Hi, this is Sean Bones, and we're listening to the news on 90.3 The Core. 
Hey, this is Nana with your 90.3 The Core Eco Environmental News Update. I want you to know that I am your environmental reporter, and I'm probably going to editorialize this report, no doubt about it. Okay, so you forewarned. On Thursday, February 24th, I went to the Delaware River Basin Commission's hearing in Trenton. This hearing was about public reply to the regulations regarding hydraulic fracturing in the regions of the Delaware River where the Marcellus Shale deposit lays. Now, hydraulic fracturing uses pressurized liquid water chemicals and sand to break apart the shale to get the natural gas. Chemicals used in fracturing are a trade secret. 80% of fluids stay in the shale deposit. Well, so now that you have that information, first thing when I got there, I was late. I am slow but effective. Don't worry. Anyway, when I climbed the steps of the War Memorial, I saw a few demonstrators. They made me feel right at home. Then I went into the War Memorial. Beautiful theater and also free parking. Anyway, a member of the DRBC was explaining some of the many rules the DRBC had written to limit and control the fracking companies. After that, gentleman was finished, the public was allowed two minutes a person to comment, and so they did. Young and old, activists and then not activists, people from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, all took their two minutes. I stayed for around 50 of them. Representatives were there from the Sierra Club, NYH2O, Gas Truth Clean Water Action, based in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the Delaware Riverkeeper Organization, and probably more. These want no fracking in the basin and urge the commission to wait for cumulative impact studies to be complete. They would like more hearings and the time to comment to be extended from 90 days to 120 days. Landowners from Wayne County did not like the imposition of the activists on their decision over their own land. They thought that the DRBC moved too slow, the rules onerous, and designed to stall and delay until death of fracking projects. Some stated their case with utmost respect, others not so. I wrote a question in the margin of my notes. Is this farmland? Why is it not viable for farming, wind energy, solar panels? Why only fracking has been considered? Because the fracking company knocked on their door promising money to use their land. Many said that they were good stewards and conservationists of their land, and so I believed them until the day they take the money, sell out, and allow fracking on their land, which happens to sit on the Marcellus Shell deposit. Now, last week on February 23rd, an explosion and fire at a Marcellus Shell hydraulic fracturing site in southwestern Pennsylvania injured three men. The fire at the Chesapeake Appalachia LLC natural gas well site burned for around four hours before being extinguished. And now across the country, a good story for you to learn more about gas industry practices and fracking wells that are already in progress in the state of Wyoming. I'd like you to go to this site and actually view this episode of Need to Know. It's www.pbs.org slash WNET slash need to know slash video. You scroll down, look for the video of fracking versus drinking water and make up your own mind. But my mind's made up. Frack, no. This is 90.3 The Core, the Eco Environmental News Update. Thanks for listening. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core. When we come back, 
We'll talk to Neil Kuypers of the Daily Targum about what's been happening around Rutgers this week. The Core News will be back right after this. The door opened and there she was. She said, how can I help you, little lady? I can't listen to my favorite radio station, 90.3, the car. She had just moved to the big city from a small town in Jersey. Well, miss, you came to the right place. Just head to thecore.fm, where they are streaming all your favorite shows 24 hours a day. You can even make a request right there on the webpage. Well, how can I ever repay you? Don't thank me, ma'am. Thank 90.3, the core. Another open and shut case. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. Neil Kuypers was recently the editor-in-chief of The Daily Targum, and he is a senior at Rutgers University. He's come in today to talk to us about some of the stories on Rutgers that The Daily Targum has covered this week. How are you doing, Neil? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm all right. Well, uh, thanks for having me. just wanted to say I'm excited to be here on The Core. What's been happening at Rutgers this week? Recently... Uh, there's been two uh, major developments at the university. The Board of Governors, which is uh, essentially the rulemaking body at the university, recently faced a state appellate court decision that said the way they held meetings discriminated um, against attendees. And uh, another development at the university is is next year they intend to provide gender-neutral housing in three residence halls, Demarest, New Gibbons, and Rockoff at the university in hopes to better provide for students' needs, especially in light of some of the recent events at the university taking place in October and November, all of last year, um, after following Tyler Clementi. So, um, right, Tyler Clementi was the Rutgers freshman who committed suicide Correct. last semester. Um, after that, there was a lot of outcry from the LGBTQ community to create safe spaces at the university. And next year, they intend to offer gender-neutral gender housing so gender-neutral housing basically means that if you're a man and a woman, you can live together despite uh, any misconceptions or, or um, issues of, of uncomfortability. Really, it was, it was um, designed to make lesbian and gay students feel like they could live with someone that they could be comfortable with because you actually do pick the person you're living with, and it has to be someone you know, according to this new policy at the university. So they're not going to partner a male student with a female student randomly. You have to pick the person that you're going to live with because they want this to be something where the people living together can make it work um, because there's no difference between pairing two randomly opposite-sex people as mm. two random same-sex people. They're going to try and avoid that. And it's also a pilot program. That's why it's only being offered in uh, three residence halls. Um, because they want to see how it works out and, and just how it fits the university, although this is something that many universities across the country have been doing. So the university is trying to keep in line with that and really see what progressive things they can be doing. And otherwise, students living in dorms, women have to live with women, men have to live with men. Correct. And uh, in Demarest and New Gibbons, the floors that are gender neutral will be specifically for gender neutral students because they will have gender neutral bathrooms. At Demarest, they have unisex bathrooms, so men and women can use the same restroom. Yeah, uh, Demarest has long been 
a champion, I guess you could say, at the university of safe spaces and, and just gender neutral living and comfortable living with your neighbors. That's something that the residents of Demarest have really been trying to do over the past few years. So it would make sense why it is definitely one of the residence halls that's going to kind of be part of this pilot program at the university. The article mentioned two students who were just, it was a man and a woman who were just friends with each other. They'd known each other for a long time and they were each having trouble finding housing for next year. So they were just living together because it was someone they felt comfortable with and it was a convenient way to arrange for housing. Right. By doing this, the university isn't going to give priority to uh, LGBTQ students because that would be unfair. It's pretty much any male and female or any, yeah, any male and female combination that wants to get a room together and that has the lottery number can do so. And that will start for next fall? Yep, that should start at the beginning of next year. It should be implemented and, you know, we'll see how long it goes for and how okay. it works out. And so you mentioned the Board of Governors. They, so they meet about, what, once a month? Yeah, uh, and on and different campuses because they're still responsible for all of, all of the universities governing. Um, they do things like set the uh, schedule. So the university schedule, uh, when you can register for classes, when the ad drop period is, finals, stuff like that, as well as um, they have a, a lot of uh, money. Okay. They, they deal with larger issues regarding the university, like hiring for important positions, things like that? Yeah, uh, and a lot of the top administrative positions, anyone that really is uh, in the administration vice presidents, they do a lot of review and, and give their um, opinion because they're the... I guess the step above the president, the oversight that the administration has to be responsible to. So uh, they're responsible for a lot of the, the bigger issues, and uh, they, yeah, they meet once a month. So they currently engage in what a New Jersey State Appellate Court has ruled um, as a illegal practices as far as the Open Public's Meeting Act or the Sunshine Law goes. The court ruled that by holding an open meeting for the public, followed by an indeterminate length closed session, followed by another open session, was actually discriminating from people being involved in the process. So um, the idea was that people would attend the first open session, and then they would, they'd have to leave the room during the closed session. And because it would take an indeterminate length of time, they were hoping that most of the public who were attending the meeting would leave and not attend the second open session? Well, I don't know that anyone can say they were hoping people would leave, but that certainly... That was sometimes the results. Exactly. Certainly holding an indeterminate length closed session will discourage people from staying until that session is over, especially if it goes for a few hours, which some of them can, depending on the issues that they're discussing, which are usually involving salaries, retention, potential candidates for hire that aren't uh, necessarily public information yet. Right. And because they, they are issues. allowed to have, in addition to having open sessions, they are allowed to have closed sessions during their meetings, legally. Yeah, they are allowed to have closed sessions. They need to have closed sessions, and there are certain levels of a closed session. There are closed sessions and uh, what I would call a closed-closed or a double-closed session, where certain members that would be allowed to sit on a closed session actually have to leave as well because of the um, sensitivity of the issues they're dealing with. So as far as that goes, the courts are trying to make sure that the university adheres to the Sunshine Law and allows people to be involved in the decision-making process, even if they are not the deciders. They have a right to hear the information. So how did this issue come to the court's attention? A university alumnus uh, named Francis McGovern, who started attending Board of Governors meetings after the cancellation 
of a number of varsity sports. So this was around, uh, I think, 2006, when the, all those sports were, were cut. That prompted him to start attending these meetings because he was a, a member of one of those sports and wanted to be involved in the Board of Governors process. So he regular, regularly attends these meetings and was concerned with some of the practices that was that were going on. And then one of the issues that was discussed in the closed session actually should have been discussed in an open session, which was the impetus behind taking this to the courts and trying to really figure out what they were doing and what was going on. As a result, the court system was actually able to take that question of could they discuss this in the closed section or was this open session material and then make a ruling that basically says your practices are they're not the best practices you're not do, uh, adhering to the sunshine law in the best way that you should be so we want you to review that and make sure that at your next meeting and at, at the meetings coming um you are adhering to the the sunshine law and and involving as much of the public as possible without potentially discouraging them from being part of the process. And currently there's no word as to how the Board of Governors is going to comply with this? No, there's there's no um, you know laid out plan. They're, they're not coming forward and saying, well, we're going to do this, this, and this to, to make the change. It'll probably be evident at their next meeting. And remember, this was an appellate court decision, so it can still be appealed to the state Supreme Court because the appellate court doesn't necessarily have the final say. Do you think it's likely that Rutgers will try to appeal it, or do you think they'll probably just go with it? I mean, it it just seems like something that the university would, would want to go forward with. At least the Board of Governors would want to continue down what the courts have said, continue on with what the appellate court said, only because you have to make sure that you're adhering to the law when you do these things, and so they don't want to bring any negative publicity or any, any negative looks to the university. I'm sure that's something that they're going to consider when they decide exactly how to implement some changes, um, because the, the court didn't give them a formula for how to change. They just said, this is discouraging, so it should change. So how it will change has yet to be seen, but the next Board of Governors meeting, I'm sure there will be some sort of different practices or mention of uh, what they're going to do. All right, so we'll have to see what they do then. Mm-hmm. Neil Kuypers was recently the editor-in-chief of the Daily Targum here at Rutgers, and he's a senior at Rutgers University. We were talking about what's been happening here at Rutgers over the last week, as covered by the Daily Targum. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. We'll be back with more Core News right after this. in to Edie's Dinner Dash every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 for some delicious new music only here on 90.3 The Core. You just got served. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. On Wednesday, February 23rd, something unusual appeared on the shores of the city of Clothamboy. The kind of thing you don't often find in central New Jersey. A seal. My name is uh, David Volk, and I am the fire chief for the Clothamboy Fire Department. We got a report that 
there was a seal that had come up on the beach uh, off of Sadowski Parkway, and we went down and verified that there was, in fact, a seal that had come up on the beach, and we contacted the Marine Mammal Stranding Center down in Brigantine and uh, actually emailed them some pictures down that we took of it, and they were able to tell us that it was a nine-month-old harp seal, and they said that the seal did not appear to be in any kind of distress and that it probably just, you know, came up on the beach to get out of the water for a little bit. And uh, they said, basically, just leave it alone, and uh, when it's ready, it'll go back in the water and swim away. Have any onlookers stopped by to check out the seal? We, we've, we've had some people come by. So we, we had uh, some personnel out there uh, for the better part of the afternoon just making sure that people don't get up close to it and try to pet it or, you know, look at it up close because they can bite and, and whatnot. And they're not used to uh, humans coming up and being in contact with them. So uh, we've had somebody out there, and actually the Stranding Center may send some volunteers out just, again, to make sure that nobody wanders by and tries to play with it or do anything with it. And how often do you get seals in Perth Amboy? Uh, we, we get them on occasion. It's, this isn't the first one that we've had. We've actually had uh, a couple of years ago we had a seal that used to come up and flop itself up onto the uh, – the dock in our boat basin for a while and sun itself and then when it got ready it would just roll back into the water and swim away so we we, we have them up here uh you know on occasion we've had other mammals come up here in 2008 we actually had a uh, whale a small whale that beached itself on uh, the beach in almost the same location uh, but that was a uh, whale that was in distress was actually sick and uh wound up uh dying after uh, a short while up on the beach but uh, so we're, we we do get it from occasion to uh, occasionally we'll get uh, somebody come up on the beach like that so the fire department is is pretty well practiced in dealing with beached animals yeah we've 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 dealt with it before we we normally uh, you know deal with the uh, the marine mammal stranding center when anything does you know come up on the shore to uh, you know we get a hold of them and and you know if need be they'll they'll send their volunteers out and they can actually come up and either get the, the animal back in the water if need be, or, you know, they have the facilities to, to remove it if it's, you know, sick or whatnot. They'll they'll take it and put it in a trailer, uh, you know, in a tank and whatnot and take it back to uh, Brigantine where they'll take care of it, get it back to good health if need be. But that's that was the case with this one. They, they were able to look at the pictures and say, oh, you know, it was fine and uh, just leave it at that. And a volunteer from the Stranding Center in Brig- Brigantine shoot the seals safely back into the water later on Wednesday. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. One day last week, the Livingston Student Center was full of students. So how's that different from any other day? Well, this time, they were high school students, visiting the LSC and learning how to deal with bullying for a Rutgers Upward Bound event. Hi, my name is Jamila Fibo, and I am the developmental specialist for the Rutgers Upper Bound program. So Upper Bound is a federal pre-college program, and our main goal is to serve low-income first-generation students from Perth, Amboy, New Brunswick, and Plainfield, um, assist them successfully graduate from high school, and prepare for college admission to any college of their choice. So what's the event going on here in Livingston Student Center today? 
This is in celebration of our TRIO Day, and TRIO is uh, the, the umbrella organization that Upward Bound Student Support Services at McNair here at Rutgers University are all support programs that fall under the umbrella of TRIO. And today is our TRIO Day Youth Summit Against Bullying, and it's actually taking a stance with all the neighboring community schools and coming and taking a chance of different ways how students can become upstanders instead of bystanders and empower students to stand up to bullying and how impactful it can be to students um, in high school age students. So what's one of the things that students learned about today to combat bullying? Well, some of the resources that they have in their communities of, of, of support programs and different types of stands from, let's say, prosecutor's office, uh, GLSEN. Um, we had also uh, also the Graduate School of Education and different people who's, who've researched the topic, talk about panelists and certain issues and, and different outlets that students have. They also uh, were spoken by New York bestseller uh, Jody Blanco, who just uh, wrote her book, Please Stop Laughing at Me, who was a victim of bullying herself. And she actually um, shared her firsthand accounts of her experiences in high school with bullying, how she felt. Um, so this idea of, of trying to um, maybe practice em- empathy and, and visualize what it's like on the other side of a, a victim of bullying. And if somebody wants to find out more, is there a website for Upward Bound or Vitria? Yes, they can go to upwardbound.ruckers.edu um, to find more information about our program. And also that, that would actually give you branches out to the different support programs at Rutgers, like Student Support Services and McNair. How long has this program been going on at Rutgers? Upperbound is the oldest of the trio programs here at Rutgers. We've been in 45 years in operation. So I guess there are a lot of Rutgers students who have graduated thanks to uh, some help they got before college from Upward Bound? Definitely. We know we have about 60% of our students since 2000 up until this year have come to Rutgers, through Rutgers. Um, and we've had an over 96% success rate of students getting into colleges, of any colleges around the nation and um, in all of the state. We've had, as of since 2000, we've had about uh, 45% of our students, and I know this because I'm the numbers person, <laughs> 45% of, of the students that have been through the program since 2000 have already received a bachelor's degree or greater. Visit our website, Support Upper Bound. We're over Always looking for different types of um, scholarship fundraisers for our students and, and still clear for any other events that we're having for the community. This is Sarah Chadwick from Batrider and the news is coming up on 90.3 The Core. This is Nerdpocalypse with me, DJ Calamar of Squid Rock, bringing you the latest news in the comic and video gaming world. In DC news, Friday Night Light star Adrian Palicki has been picked to play Wonder Woman in the upcoming TV series pilot. The previous Wonder Woman series ended in 1979. With Smallville ending this year, DC has big shoes to fill. Marvel Comics is getting ready to dominate the movie realm this year with both the Thor and Captain America movies coming out this summer. A new trailer for Thor premiered recently that makes the movie look as action-packed as previous Marvel installments. Let's see how it does this May. With the success of its first season, The Walking Dead is now to be made into a video game premiering late this year. According to IGN, Telltale Games has entered a multi-year, multi-platform, multi-title Walking Dead partnership with the creator of Walking Dead, Robert Kirkman. The game is planned to be an episodic adventure that will continue on for several years. So far, The Walking Dead has been both a successful graphic novel and TV series. Will it work as a video game? Telltale Games hopes it will. And to be honest, so do I. This has been Nerdpocalypse. I'm DJ Calamari. Stay tuned for some more great core radio. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. Now it's time to find out what's happening in the world of new music. Here's Justin Magic. TV on the radio has revealed a set of tour dates in support of their new album. 
The album, which is titled Nine Types of Light, will be released on April 12th. The tour begins April 8th at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia and will continue for the rest of the month, finishing up in San Diego on May 2nd. Nine Inch Nails mastermind Trent Reznor came away with an Oscar last night for best score for his work on The Social Network. Reznor's score for the film also won him a Golden Globe just last month. The Black Keys have announced plans for a summer tour scheduled to last from March to July. Along the way, the band will be playing at the Coachella and Bonnaroo festivals. For the last half of the tour, Cage the Elephant will be joining them as an opening act. In the wake of the breaking up of the White Stripes last month, many wondered what music project frontman Jack White would turn to next. Last week, White told reporters that he does not plan on forming another band anytime soon and that he's happy to continue with his solo career. Along with the White Stripes, Jack White has been part of the Dead Weather and the Rancon Tours. Interpol bassist Dave Peho has announced that he will be leaving the band. Peho has been with Interpol for only about a year, ever since original bassist Carlos Stengler left. Peho was originally the bassist of post-rock outfit Slint. Interpol has not yet announced who will be replacing Peho. Now here are your 90.3 The Core music charts for the week of February 22nd. At number 10 was Mogwai with Hardcore Will Never Die But You Will. Number 9 was Telekinesis with their album 12 Desperate Straight Lines. Number 8 was Valhalla Dancehall by British Sea Power. Number 7 was an EP by French Horn Rebellion called This Moment. Number 6 was The Get Up Kids with There Are Rules. Number 5 was Rooney with Eureka. Number 4 was Wonder Visions by Delicate Steve. Number 3 was The People's Key by Bright Eyes. Number 2 was Iron and Wine with Kiss Each Other Clean. And number one for three straight weeks now is The Decemberists with The King is Dead. I'm Justin Magic, and this has been the 90.3 The Core Music News. That's all for this week's edition of The Core News. We will be back next Monday at 7 p.m. right here on 90.3 The Core. Or... If you find you might be busy next Friday, excuse me, next Monday, you know, got a hot Monday date, got a big test to study for, well, don't worry, because you can always listen to The Core News online at thecore.fm or download our podcast at your convenience. If you'd like to contact The Core News, tell us how much you like our podcast, suggest a news story, ask a question, or, you know, maybe even join The Core News team yourself then you can send us some email to news at thecore.fm. The Core News has been brought to you by Amy Bronstein, Sarah Morrison, Nana, DJ Calamari, Justin Matchick, Stephen Yannick, and Mindy Hoffman. You've been listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core.